Hello, you're listening to the Consequential Podcast. I'm Dave Gondry, this is Roger Hart. The podcast wine is a plaintive lowing in the slaughter yard. Roger is sober for the first time in 16 years. It is terrifying. He has sprouted hair from places where no hair should be. This is Lucy Boyce. Say hello, Lucy. Lucy's always sober. I'm half sober. It's it's peculiar. You've had like a hundred centiliters of beer. Probably yes. I'm actually sober. Um, this is this is all mere chat though. What have you been reading? Um, I have been reading Pretty Deadly, which is good and we'll be talking about later. Um, Stuck Rubber Baby by uh, yes. Ray Curse, is it? Howard Cruz. Howard Cruz. Who, so you've, you've... There is no person called Ray. Uh, by Howard Cruz. <laughs> Ray Curse file? I don't know. That he's, would be horrifying. switched from talking about the oncoming storm of machines and terror and the singularity to, you know, gay rights in the 1980s. Yeah, I, I doubt it. Um, so you've both read Stuck Rubber Baby. We've both read yeah. Stuck Rubber Baby. Do you both like Stuck Rubber Baby? Yes. Oh, yeah. God, yes. It's the best thing I've read all year. Interesting. Is this new? No, no. It's old. It's 1995, I think. Yeah, um, this is the... It's a new edition, um, new cover, and an introduction by Alison Bechtel. Yes. It's the 15th anniversary hardback reissue. Um, did I did I mention it last week? I, I, I mentioned it. I, you mentioned that you were reading it or mm. were going to read it, I think. I don't think we talked about it. Mm-hmm. But no, it is It is sensational. Um, I'm a little nervous of talking about it because being a white middle-class British person, I don't know much about the history of the civil rights movement in America. So it would be very easy to put a foot wrong and it is set kind of a few months before the, is it the the big march in Washington? The Million Man March. Yeah. Um, It's set just before and just after that and is it, it's the story of this this reasonably straight-laced but free-thinking kid in a tiny town in the American South. I can't remember exactly where. It's not autobiographical, but it's drawn informed by autobiography, I'd say. And the kid is on the fringes of the integrationist mo- and sort of civil rights movement and gradually becomes drawn more and more into it by a girl he's trying to see because he's desperately trying to make himself straight. Right. There's a lot of meat on those bones. It's got a bunch of kind of uh, racial politics and racial identity stuff, a bunch of queer identity stuff, um, trauma, memory. It's achingly sad in places. Um, kind of hopeful-ish. Well, it kind of axiomatically has to be hopeful because of the perspective the story's told from. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. What, what do you... Well, so he uses the device of... Um... The guy, the sort of, the protagonist is narrating it from the far future in a situation where he is presented as being very obviously in a happy, committed, supportive gay relationship mm. somewhere else. It's very clear that with things... Jetpacks? Not with jetpacks, but not it's very that clear that things future. did no. get better. Right. Mm. Far future from the 60s, I think yeah. we're talking like present day 1995-ish yeah. when it was written. And it's very touching, the sort of occasional intro scenes or kind of look-back scenes with um, his partner interjecting and teasing him a little bit. Uh, mm. they, they're lovely. So I think what I enjoyed the most about it is he's not the most lovable or identifiable with Hero. He sits on the fence a lot, he vacillates, and his journey into the kind of civil rights stuff and sort of the unfolding of his queer identity 
is all very tentative and he steps back and forward a lot and his motives aren't pure and there's quite a lot of the um stuff about you know he's there's a there's one particular moment where a um a sort of traditionally black motel where a group of freedom singers were rehearsing is bombed and some of those are killed or injured and he goes to the hospital with all his sort of friends and mm. civil rights buddies as part of the political movement or being there to be supportive and he goes into a lot of detail about how sort of isolated and on the fringes he feels and it's very much it's very much about him rather than about what's going on around him but to me that felt really honest because yeah. that's a thing I felt a lot of the time when I've meant to be when I'm meant to be doing something as part of a movement and the, the girl he's trying to get with at that point calls him out on it a lot when you know a lot of shit's gone down politically she's very upset by that they've had a moment in their relationship that's not going so well he wants to talk about the relationship stuff she you know calls him selfish and self-obsessed yeah. and talks about how you know there are so many much bigger problems yeah. than he has going on she wants to talk about the civil rights crisis she wants to talk about on one occasion I think the death of a close friend and he mm -hmm. wants to talk about the fact that he wants to fuck himself straight yeah but it's, especially in the depiction of that sense of isolation in a crowd, of not being part of the thing that you're meant to be part of, and how isolating that is, was... Mm. It, they're not particularly nice emotions, but I think they're emotions that we've all had, and that made me feel less of a worse person, if you know what I mean. Yeah, he's got a strong focus on the sort of accidental or for the wrong reasons nature of a lot of his superficially right decisions. And there's a lot of feeling of... Imposter syndrome isn't quite the right word, but it articulates very neatly his feeling that he's shambling through all of this and not really doing it right. You know, outwardly, he... And people, people treat him as... Um, people treat him as, I guess, more, more radical, more committed, more, more authentic might be the word. A, a representation of either towards the end queer identity or the civil rights or the integration integrationist movement um, than he than he himself feels and that that kind of duality is something he negotiates quite interestingly you actually have you sorry you also have the thing of in the context of his queer identity the fact that he is able to and does very easily pass as straight mm. and the how the conflicting nature of that for him and I don't know, I guess, I guess in both the civil rights stuff and the gay stuff, he's being read wrong a lot of the time, and Pretty it explores the conflict that that causes him. Yeah, uh, and his his kind of kind of neediness to latch on to a lot of things as well, to kind yeah. of run through those identity steps. He's, he's astoundingly clingy. I think he wants to be read wrong in both instances yeah. as well. He wants people to believe he is the activist he looks like and the straight man he mm. looks like and is it jimmy noon or possibly sammy. No, sammy is it noon or no one noon i think yeah i, I wasn't sure how, how how much you were supposed to elide that and how glib it was being but he kind of i think it, it, this is a bit of an overreading, but you could see him as as acting as sort of acting out the bits that the protagonist whose name i've also forgotten just doesn't talent talent yes just doesn't get to be Yes. So the speech, the speech he makes at Tammy's funeral yes. is an iteration of a number of the things that, that Tammy says. But it's also, Sammy's also a representation of all the stuff he really wants to distance himself from, mm. the kind of hyperactive, high-pitched queen scene stuff that yeah. 
was more was prevalent in some places mm. in that scene of the time, but which he doesn't personally identify with. And which, interestingly, he barely finds. He finds it in a few people, but the scene where he finally goes to the rhombus and there's the flashing light to alert them to the cops and a spirit of kind of community and a lot of it's it's kind of largely non-sleazy with little outcrops of sleaze. It's not really something I associate with gay culture of the time, but that might just be because there's no sort of actual representation of it until the mm. late 70s in sort of in broader popular culture. Oh, the, the, camps, the campy sort of sissy archetype is definitely old. Mm. Um, but the contemporary sort of waxed and tweezed and spray tanned scene queen, I think, is new coinage. Because I think of Allen Ginsberg, hmm. which is not that. I think you have some very uh, selective... Um, well, this is it. There's, there's, so yeah. I, I know very, very little about gay culture at the hmm. time. Um, so anything like that would actually be quite interesting if it's hmm. actually representative. It feels like it probably is. It almost certainly was well-researched. I mean, the guy author participated in and is kind of a main... Well, according to Bechdel's introduction, at least, I'm not that familiar with the details, the sort of a mainstay of underground queer comics and part of the movement from the period. It's also um, extremely impressive as a piece of fiction, as a piece of narrative. I found it... It's very, very dense. The characters Mm. are all very believable. It sort of... It was one of those things where I almost couldn't believe that there wasn't more autobiography to it than he claimed there was. He presents it very much as a work of fiction based around settings he was familiar with growing up in the South, but it's, I don't think it's meant to be directly autobiographical, but it, as, as Roger's been saying, it feels mm. like memoir. It really does, but without... Um, I really loved about it is, but without the... When some of it doesn't hang, well, it doesn't have this problem, but the thing where kind of when memoir doesn't hang, that's because it's the way it happened. It's not going to have the narrative neatness mm. unless someone aggressively tidies up. Uh, it does have the narrative neatness. It neatness. It clips together except when the rough edges are posed. It's it's a beautiful thing. And the, uh, the, the artwork is, it's, oh God, it's so dense. Uh, black and white. A lot very, of textures. Very, yeah, the, 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 the hatching and the little kind of the, the pencil work, I guess, it's just, it, it's amazingly crisp and very, very dense. It does a lot of stuff with light and shadow, which, which I like a great deal. The characters are all highly distinctive. It's, it's not as pretty as I generally like my art. There's a lot of the grotesque in the physicality of the characters as well as in some of their, you know, beliefs and actions. But mm. I think that was better overall than trying to do a sort of spray-brushed version of yeah. real people. So, I mean, well, some fictional people in terms of real. sort of queer comics that we all know, you, you also read Six Miles a Second, which is also really quite... Yeah. Oh, I haven't read that yet. I did read that. I did read that. Um, um, it's, this is a lot more coherent as narrative than that. that. I mean, that, for me, is a representation of a very different era in queer culture. That's the, the, both the terror of AIDS and kind of the terror of global annihilation of the 80s, both combined into a sort of seething, shrieking, disintegrating mass of a comic, whereas this was very... This was tight. This was, yeah. this was tight. This was much more narrative. This was much more character-driven. Mm. One of the things I remember most strongly from that time is uh, just a news report. I think it was ITV. Um, 
uh, about AIDS and they just kept having all of these graphs for different countries which were just stacking tombstones as bar graphs which That's just seemed, not good data no, presentation no, when no. everyone's terrified of a deadly disease. Yeah, at most I would have been seven or eight and I still knew <sighs> that was a bad idea. Yeah. Um, there was some very irresponsible reporting in the 80s. Yeah. About lots of stuff. Yeah. Lots of stuff. But basically, Stuck Rubber Baby is, is well worth picking it's, up. It's fucking great comics. Who's, who's reissued the... Um, the anniversary edition. It's actually Vertigo, I think. It is, really? I think. Yeah. Which surprised me. I thought it would be a, an indie label. He So he originally published it under a... It was due to be published under a DC imprint that folded before it was right. finished. So it went out under another imprint. I can't remember which one, but it's... Oh, there was... Um, yes, there was a pre-Vertigo one which just collapsed and died. And mm. I think a lot of it got folded into the original start of Vertigo in mm. the 90s. No, it's... Um, it's visually gorgeous, the design of some of the pages. There are these little sort of look-back moments where the kind of there's stuff going on behind the panels set in kind of the present-day or present-day sort of narrative scenario, so kind of close-ups of faces or movements or gestures. And then set in, sort of on a plane in front of that are little picked-out vignettes of, of the past that he's describing or little things that the, the, the eye of memory is lingering on um, in these slightly almost infographic-y page compositions, not like full-on Helvetica and line diagrams, but arranged fragments um, that, that assemble to make the recollection and then it sort of breaks back into the story. It also does some wonderful thing with things with panel, panel compression. Mm-hmm. So panel density on the page getting higher and lower quite selectively. It's, it does pretty much everything I'm aware of, um, of comics knowing how to do. I would, I, would, I would wholeheartedly recommend picking up um, Stuck Rover Baby. It's... Yeah, it's just lovely. I sort of want to give it to everyone I know and just say, read this motherfucker and have mm. your mind blown. Where do you, what do you think about the title? So I interpret it as a criticism slash description of where the narrator is during the events of the story mm. in a kind of southern idiom. Mm. Um, so I didn't look it up. It might. I, I, I didn't look it no. up either. I interpreted it as he is quite literally, you know, st- stuck in a rut, mm. being an absolute pussy about stuff. He's. It's it's kind of he's. As I've said, he's not the most likable hero. A lot of it is him just kind of bumbling through his life, fucking stuff up here and there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, is is anyone aware of any idiom it's directly referencing? I haven't read it yet. No. Does it say anything on Wikipedia? No, it doesn't. I'm just looking at the original edition. So I wondered if it was a reference on some level to because I mean he does he ends up with a child. Oh shit! No, uh, he's also the, got the. Um, there's the pivotal scene with the. No, no, no! It's 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 with the fail condom. I was completely wrong. It's the fail condom, isn't it? Because the yeah. rubber got stuck. Yeah. Didn't have another one. Had a baby. No, it's not or, quite that. Okay. It's, um, his inability to get this like wizened, decrepit condom that he's been carrying around in his wallet as a symbol of masculinity for a while. It's kind of, what's, what do you call it, the rubber's decayed. Mm-hmm. Um, his inability to um, pull this over his, his, his fragile little um, quivering boner um, tips him over the edge into flurries of embarrassment and confession, which leads mm-hmm. to the collapse of his um, fledgling relationship, and then it's sort of picked up later in the one time he does manage to um, get, get, it up get, get his end away all lady-style, he ends up with a kid. Mm. Um, there's a lot going on there 
uh, there's, there's more than we've touched on. There's it's, endless stuff. I mean, the whole relationship with the sister, the parents thing. Oh, God, the sister and Ollie. It's yeah. The, 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 they, they, I think they might have been my favourites. The sister goes kind of bug-fuck crazy and then comes back. And Ollie goes a different bug-fuck crazy, ends up a hippie, which is yeah. not what you'd have expected of him. I'd have liked to see a few more pointers that was going to happen. Not many, just one or two. It didn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the oh, the, the girl, the, the girl he he takes to the the barbecue, who then tears in a new yes. one about people, you know, mocking the South and taking yes. the Lord's name in vain. And it's gonna I, everywhere you you sort of turn in it, it, it has it conveys this wonderful sense. You just don't know which way any of the characters are going to jump, as he would not have known. Um, but the, the people just sort of jump out from behind things and are racist at you. It's kind of I love that, the that, um, that uncertainty of what the social status of anyone is. The is, um, the two old lesbians who run mm, Alisex and yeah. that whole side of it. There are so many different groups of characters that it's really interesting, and they all sort of interact kind of through knowing him. Mm-hmm. And those interactions are really interesting. It's yeah, it's amazingly dense. It took me a really long time to read, actually. Yeah, I digested it over over a few days and. Uh... So just yeah. just hearing that it had been reissued made me faintly hopeful that another faintly queer comic from around the same time from Vertigo would be reissued, which is, um, which is uh, Enigma um, by Peter Milligan. Um, he did Greek Street, which was not so good, but he also did a lot of stuff in the 80s with Brennan right. uh, McCarthy, which was fantastic. Enigma was one of the sort of first genuinely smart like didn't get it first time comics mm. um, that I ever read which is about it's a about a guy who sort of encounters his sort of um, this, this sort of imaginary superhero character that he is obsessed with um, who turns out to be gay and it's all about his sort of perceptions of his sexuality nature of reality and is that what going on. Ellis is riffing on with the personal sex midgets guy? No. No, no, no. That's just sort of post-Dark Knight uh, comics, the, the whole sort of planetary thing. Mm. No, that was the sort of um, everything has to be dark now mm. um, sort of... Oh, so, yeah, no, no, I get that. I wonder if the sort of the, the, the broken no. superhero who is having a traumatic time coming to terms with this the superhero character is not broken it's more the it's more the, the guy he's sort of living this button down life and mm. this might just be full on complete mental collapse at living this life that right. is not really what he should be living um, but yeah it turns out that's getting reissued next year which oh, is cool. good because it's been out of print for absolutely ages and I've been wanting to reread it without paying some eBay price gouges prices for it Excellent. Um, so that's good. Good I, work. What is left of Vertigo? You people are doing several good things. I have to admit, when you said Ellis, I thought you meant Hester's brother. No. <laughs> you meant Warren Ellis. I meant Warren Ellis. You yeah, didn't mean the guy who works at the dog shelter either. No. no. The podcast wine is the skittering of claws. What he means is uh, there's, a, there's a bit in Planetary when... Um, it's a big riff on the Vertigo years and sort of the the dark, weird, magical end of DC Comics in the 1980s mm-hmm. where there's a character who is definitely not John Constantine who dies. And is definitely and, not drawn like Spider-Jerusalem. Yeah, they go and, they go and, uh, they go and investigate his death and of course it 
turns out he's still alive, but it's time for him to be something else. And he drops his uh, drops his coat, and underneath he's just Spider Jerusalem, Warren Ellis's transmet character, um, which apparently wasn't in the script. It was something that John Cassidy put in to fuck with Warren Ellis, but they kept it, so it's quite nice. It's not as insanely self-centered as it might first appear. He's um, but this he, this character is is oh god, I've forgotten his name. Jack Carter. Jack Carter is um, is trying to escape a superhero who's got a murder, a sort of homicidal crush on him, and this guy eventually appears carrying like a lead pipe or something in a tattered cape with stained, stained. badly stained, mm. just just yelling. And it was something like, "I used to be pure. I used to be brilliant, but then I found out I had a dark and gritty past. I thought I was such and such. It, I didn't realize I was made out of the genetic code of Hitler's personal sex midgets." Didn't even know Hitler had personal sex midgets. It's um, it's uh, one of the most Warren Ellis things you'll ever read. Speaking of which, oh, look at that, that was a legitimate segue. Yes, look at that. It's been a while since we've called them out, but there we go. Mm. Um, Moon Knight. I think we yes. talked about the first issue when it came out. Mm. It's up and to four now. I believe at the time we said this is a very Warren Ellis piece of writing. Yes. What did you think about this one? It's a lot like a replay of Death, Death Machine Telemetry. Which is another issue of Planetary. Which is an issue of Planetary. People drink hallucinogenic tea and talk about plants as knowing all things. Well, kind of. It's, it's about... It's wrapped up in a lot of this sort of science mythology stuff that when he wants to, Ellis writes very, very well, or at least very fluently. Um... And the idea that, yes, we, we are in awe of big and complex things, but what about down at the sub-sub-subatomic scale? And Snow, the main character, drifts down and down to a kind of fundamental substructural level of reality where the very stuff of life is circulating as particles or something. But he has this trippy-as-balls experience. Um, and it's all to do with sort of what happens when you die and things recirculating. And it's visually and tonally reprised quite heavily in this Midnight single where Moon Knight is investigating uh, rum doings at a sleep research clinic. Yeah, a bunch of people are going profoundly nuts in while they're in a sort of suspended, artificially elongated dream state. Mm. Um, and so he basically says, yes, I'll help, turns up. Demands, is a dick demands, to the guy. Yeah, is, is a dick to the guy. Demands to uh, the god that only he believes in that he be put straight to sleep and then falls into a psychedelic dream state immediately which is gorgeous and um, who's doing the it's, uh, it's Declan Shelby um, and it's Geordie Belair colouring yeah. and it's got that thing that we'll talk about later in Pretty Deadly with the surprise purple yeah I don't know that we're necessarily going to keep calling it that because that sounds like something you would do and you know get thrown out of a respectable establishment for um, but yeah there is the, the colour palette in the trippy stuff is pretty fucking trippy so it's all it's kind of dark nearly monochrome lots of browns leading up to it and then it breaks into these very heavily sort of segmented panels with some very warm tones and all of the purples and some really mad shit and a gorgeous um sort of sugar skull motif it's delicious yeah and that's something that 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 panel um does some remarkable things with just suggestions of movement by just the way the gutters are spaced which are 
mm-hmm. really quite quite cool. You have the sort of the main character that is powerful, dexterous. Yeah, just sort of it. The, the main character is not even necessarily there, but because the main character is constantly represented as not being coloured in, as just being this pure white, you can sort of infer a gliding movement and th- spend and some time moon just by the gutters, which is yeah. pretty pretty damn good. And giant upside down spicy coloured sugar skull with psychedelic fungus. Muy picante. Muy picante. Um, I really like this series. And I really like the sort of standalone issues. Uh, and the fact that all of the stories are not so far connected. And I like the weird violence. And the fact that he's just a horrible shit with um, apparently no capacity for moral relativism. He just really decides... Deals in absolutes. Um... Not entirely, but he beats the shit out of this guy because he's very cross. It's, it's, it's a nice he's, thing. He's an irascible gent. He is, yeah. Um, the second issue I didn't like quite so much, but the third one was a ridiculous riff on basically something that looked a lot like the fog crossed with the warriors, and it was him trying to beat up 1980s ghosts. <laughs> wow. Um, punk ghosts wandering around New York in the fog, and him trying to figure out how to fight them, which was pretty extraordinary. Um, but, you know, six I issues. Would, I would assume. They and then there's a new do. team taking over, which is sad, because I like, um, I like the weirdness they're doing here, but such is life. Such is life. What else? What else? Come on, tell us. The podcast wine is just at the edge of your hearing. Stop that. What else have you been doing? Um, I, what have I been doing? I don't know. I have also read This One Summer, which yes. apparently people were all kind of jiggly excitement and fun times over at TCAF. Yeah, I got launched there. Um, and it's coming of age story? Kind of. It's, um, it's deceptively simple, uh, superficially. So you've got this girl. It's not really clear how old she is. She's probably 13 or so. Um, Rose. And she and her family every year go down to this beach resort. And she's got... And it really clips into that feel of recurrent, patterned family holidays. Um, Which, even if you didn't go on them, are so extant in the culture that they're an accessible... No, I definitely went on those. That they're an accessible trope, and so did I. Um... And she's got this friend that she only ever sees there and maybe occasionally remembers to write to, and so obviously there's a massive time lapse between each time they meet and things changing. Wandering around on the beach, killing time. Um, drifting kind of closer to and further apart from her friends her family. And I'll come back to that. But against their sort of slouching around early adolescence stuff, some of which feels a little bit kind of closey, I guess, um is the stuff going on in the town. And it's nothing hugely dramatic, it's just it's, it's, it's people's lives. But they, they end up kind of voyeuristically watching the older teenagers. And Rose may or may not develop a bit of a crush on one of them, certainly a fixation. Um, and he has got his girlfriend pregnant and there's massive drama around that. And they speculate about, and Rose and her friend Wendy um, speculate around what's going on there and try and kind of, they, they try but subtly miss imagining their way into it or sort of relating to it directly. So there's, I, 
there's this kind of generational spectrum thing going on, on in it, both in terms of intelligent access to knowledge of sexuality and also in terms of communicative fluency. Have you seen or read Tamara Drew? No. Because there's a bit of that in that. There are two teenage girls obsessed with this rock star who actually comes to their town and they end up trying to seduce and just the kind of the mismatch between their understanding of his world, his understanding mm. of his world, all those sort of miscommunications is a sort of subplot yeah. in that, which sounds like a similar thing. Yeah, this sounds like the sort of bargain basement version. Like, it's not a rock star, it's a disgustingly ugly convenience store clerk. <laughs> but disgustingly ugly is a bit harsh, but he's meant to be gawky and spotty and kind of awful, and an absolute dick. Again, the, the, the height of the dickery sort of happens away from their view, mm. but they see enough to infer it. There's a lot of play with what they do and they don't see. But you've got, yeah, you've got sort of Rosa's parents at one end of the sort of lots of knowledge, have had children. The question of, of having another child hangs over them until mm. we eventually find out that Rosa's uh, mother had previously miscarried. Um, and so they have, they have kind of all of the maturity and knowledge, but none of the faculty for communication. Mm -hmm. It's all deliberately not talking and awkwardness and things very pointedly unsaid. Yeah. And then you've got the teenagers who are kind of fucking and fucking it up um, and having and sort of half-suppressed conversations and then boisterous explosions. And then you've got the kids who are... Dreaming of life. Yeah. And they they say everything. They're, they're, their dialogue is very frothy. It's very back and forth. They're, there isn't a lot of suppression, or if there is, it's sort of just beginning. And their knowledge of themselves and their kind of sexual identity is, is very... is sort of semi-formed and very jokey. There's this kind of running thing, oh, I hope I get big boobs, um, kind of... And that, that's waved at us as a sort of... That there is something I find slightly distasteful. Well, not distasteful. There's something that could be a problem, which is this idea of... Uh, I think part of the sting in the tale of it is that after everything she's seen, Rose is still kind of left wanting the big boobs and the sexualized life moments. And yet those sexualized life moments are cast as so kind of weird and threatening. And I guess that's the problem with adolescence, the sort of little knowledge thing. But mm. if you wanted to be unpleasant about it, you could view it as taking a slightly grim view of female sexuality. I don't think it does. I actually think it's quite sensitive. It's what not... gender's the writer? Um, female. Okay. Both, both female, I think. It's yeah. two cousins? Yeah. Jillian uh, and Marika Tamaki. Mm. Their, uh, their previous one, um, I think, was a girls' school mm. drama. Um, skin, oh God, I like which that kind I, of thing. I'd like to pick up. It looks good. This is this is delightful. Uh, I described. I, I've zoned in on one little thing, and there's a lot more in it than that. Her relationship with her father is splendid. Wendy's relationship with her mother. They've got there's a cantankerous granny because there's always a cantankerous granny. Of course. Um, and there there are some beautiful little moments. So towards the end, Wendy and, and Rose are splashing around in the sea and chatting. And Rose, who is fixated on this guy, I don't think. Do we do we hear his name? I'm not sure. They just call him the Dud. Um, is uh, so, so, so she's built her her fixation on him and has therefore taken against the girl he's he's got pregnant mm -hmm. and all of her friends. And she's about a year and a half older than Wendy, and it, there's that difference in their ages and attitudes and mm -hmm. sort of. She's making more of an attempt to put on the outer garmentry of sexual maturity despite having just as little of the socially articulated stuff mm -hmm. as many does. And kind of tiredly, world wearily sort of says, oh come on Wendy, surely you get them. like all the girls in this town are total sluts. And Wendy blows her top with her and yells at her for being sexist. Mm. 
And it's a wonderful reversal on something earlier that happened earlier in the book where Rose has a go at Wendy for being a bit of an irritating little brat and not having grown up very much. And you, you sort of see that they've, they're both growing up, or at least putting on the theatre of growing up, in very, very weird, pleasingly asymmetric ways. Mm. Um, it just, it's got a beautiful ear for the voice and contained experience of childhood. So when Rose has a go at her mother for being unhappy all the time, and her mother, like, in a lazier narrative, her mother would have kind of explained all of the stuff about the previous trauma and they'd have hugged and reconciled, they actually just completely communicate past each other. Mm -hmm. But you understand precisely why both of them did what they did and said what they said? It's, um, it's got really good ear for voice. The art is so-so, is, is it's occasionally beautiful, but it sort of it periodically breaks out into these double-page spreads that are a, a far more interesting than a lot of the kind of panel-to-panel -panel line work, but it's, it's good. So, I mean, Lucy, your main thing this week was Pretty Deadly, which we're going to do in yeah, um, that was the other in thing I detail read. in a minute. Um, what have you been reading, Dave? I read... I was just going just, to just say it. Um, so, uh, I've, I've been reading Basewood by Alec Longstreth, which I... It's another thing I picked up in the Canada. And, is that um, like some sort of mixture of wormwood and maths? No, it's a wood. It's a, it's a forest collection of trees. Um, so basically this guy wakes up with a head injury missing a shoe uh, in a massive forest um, and sort of sets about exploring and finds out that it's, there's, a, there's essentially a, an enormous, almost endless forest with mile-high cliff at one end and a huge open plain at the other um, and sort of initially it's about him trying to survive and then slowly he meets other characters and um, starts to actually develop a sort of life while still not knowing who he is hmm. um, and it sort of starts out it's very very cagey about um, who he is who any of the other characters are um, it didn't go to where I was thinking, which is that they were all drawn so similarly it would be some sort of weird loop. Um, but it has this beautiful simplistic style, which occasionally almost makes your eyes strobe out. It's sort of very thick, um, precise line work, quite geometrical. When you have sort of repeating trees, which are essentially stacked chevrons, um, it's a bit like looking at a detune television at times. Um, back when you could detune a television, children. Um, fucking digital. Now it's just a blue screen. Now, yeah. who's, who, who's writing drawing? Alec Longstreth. Both. Right, both. Yeah. Um, who we might know from. And nothing else. Right. Nothing else. Um, he does a lot of independent comics, and for years he's been very slowly drawing this. Which, if you see it, it's it's just incredibly, incredibly precise. Very, very detailed. Like you were saying with um, Stuck Rubber Baby incredibly detailed um, cross-hatching and shading yeah. um, to the extent that the characters are also almost sort of cartoon cartoonishly simplistic um, and the backgrounds are simplistic in their own way but very very geometrical so it's, it's a very very precise look the characters sort of pop out against the backgrounds because they actually have things like curved shapes and expressions okay. that stand out very very distinctly um, but it's just, it's the, it's the art that's the draw for me in this one. It's, it's utterly, utterly beautiful in places. Um, just these sort of 
huge vistas of so incredibly precisely drawn um, repeating patterns. Um, it's almost like the pattern is a point in a lot of places. Um, but the simplistic style, does, he uses it very, very well. So there's things like you can tell how bad a character's arthritis is when they never talk about it, but you can sort of see just sort of swelling on the knuckles and things like mm. that. So they use, use minimalism to a fairly impressive degree. There's a purpose to it. Okay. Um, there's a lot conveyed in the artwork, so there's very, very little dialogue. And occasionally, um, it has what I thought was quite a neat um, uh, visual trick of characters will walk walk away from the speech bubbles. So the conversations are happening, but the, the, the bubbles exist off panel. And essentially what you then have are just montages of people getting on with their lives, the conversations very much secondary and what they're, what they're doing and how they're relating to one another is, is the key thing. Um, the thing I picked up is the sort of big collection which got kickstarted last year, mm. which is a beautifully put together book um, from, I can't remember the name of the publisher, but it's a small publisher and it's really, really, really well done. I would heartily recommend that anyone with an interest in gently meandering weird stories with dragons and weird forests pick it up. There's a dragon. There is a dragon. There's a slightly odd dragon. Um, there's also a dog. People like dogs. I prefer dragons. Basewood. It's very good. The podcast Wine is a sea is a field sown with vertebra that comes to you in your dreams. So this week uh, we're going to look at pretty deadly in depth. Um, Roger, you're clearly in a sort of. I was going to say a sort of mythological dreamscape kind of place, but actually you're clearly just having your seventh nervous breakdown. <laughs> sixth um, off, thank you. One of them was officially declassified after the UN investigation. Should we just ignore him? We could do. I think it might also be a bit of trickster aspect. Yeah. It's funny, it's because he's got his shorts on. He does, he's jolly. <laughs> do you know what he reminds me of when he's got his shorts on? A jolly pirate. Jeanette Cranky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You good sir. Fuck you nostrally. From their blue run, obviously. Of course. Oh, God. I, I it's a nice day. Why shouldn't I wear shorts? So that the rest of us can enjoy it. <laughs> I did spend My a legs while. are pallid but delightful. I spent a long while just looking them up and down, not because there's anything particularly notable about them, just because I'd never seen them before. I was like, whoa. You were surprised yeah. I had legs. I was surprised. I was surprised that they weren't just trouser shaped, because I've only ever seen the trousers. Well, they look a lot like trousers. I've not gone for like board shorts or something. They're quite tailored. I just mm. meant you know your legs are sort of leg shaped underneath. They're not. Just... Oh, you thought they might just I be entirely trouser shaped. I thought you just sort of had jeans shapes. below the waist. You have been involved in quite a lot of aggressive boarding actions against seventeenth-century merchant vessels. There's a good chance you could have just had stumps. Yeah, but I've been very lucky in those escapades. So let's talk about the comic that we were talking about before this all went horribly wrong. Well, Death has a kind of buccaneery aesthetic in it. He does. He's kind of like a... Um, uh, he, he's sort of like the sort of Republic of California general you'd see in an old Zorro film mm. or something like that. I was super nervous about that, actually. At the opening, um, it's pretty explicit. You know, it's going to be a mythological treatment of death. We've had so many of those in comics and so many of them are bollocks. Um, 
And then Neil Gaiman came along and did the little goth girl one, and then that set the new derivative standard for kooky renditions of death. And this isn't really any of them. He's, I mean, he's a bit of an emo kid, but the visual design was pleasingly different to a lot of what else I'd seen. So he's essentially, uh, he's in a black general's outfit, general's outfit of that time. With a cavalry saber. Yeah, and uh, a rabbit skull for a head. Is it a rabbit? Yes. I couldn't quite work out exactly what it was. That was my issue with quite a lot of Pretty Deadly. I like the artwork for what it looks like, but I couldn't tell what the fuck was going on about half the time. Yes, which is problematic, given how much it depends on symbolic encoding for a few things. So I couldn't tell initially whether whether death was supposed to be the rabbit. It's also heavily dependent on action scenes with not much dialogue, and I have to pick up the pieces afterwards based on what the characters are saying, because I just... So, I mean, we've talked before about the fact that I struggle with dense stuff, stuff that's not quite cleanly lined. But I mean, it's I just definitely is not that. didn't, I genuinely didn't know what had happened in the action scenes because my eyes couldn't see what was going on. Have you watched much any um, anime? Not much. So, I mean, Pokemon. <laughs> probably doesn't count for the purposes of this. Um, I don't know if yeah. you pointed this out, someone pointed yeah, this out. Yeah, this, this was my take on it. The fight scenes are seem to owe a lot, not to manga, explicitly not to manga, but to anime. So in a lot of um, fight scenes in particularly sort of swordplay style anime series, you will get a lot of the moments that seem to be freeze-framed in Pretty Deadly, mm. of a character holding a sword out to one side or running up to someone trailing a sword along the ground. A lot of the body posturing and the framing and the composition feels a lot like it's sort of pulled out of a very anime-ish moment. I think, I think it was particularly the motion that I struggled with. So the bits where the, um, the kind of the vulture bits, which I was just like, it's just a blob. I, there was, maybe there's meant to be some stuff there, but it's kind of a feathery-looking blob. And... There's a bit early on that I did struggle with where um, one of the characters is on her back with a sword, disarms someone else, the sword goes spinning up into the air and lands next to her, and that is all a single frame essentially mm. that was it's part iffy. of one larger page where the action sort of flows down the page and there are little pull out micro panels but yeah. they, they, they don't really yeah so I was uh, I was able to eventually decode that but yeah it, I had to spend a lot longer reading it than most things and the same was true of the story I, I honestly had to read it twice to pick up yeah. the majority of what was going on but should we should we back up and um Give an overview of, of the, the the story. Yes. One of you do that. I'm not doing it. Okay, do so, um, Magical Old West, with all the mild but well-executed cliché that entails, deliberate and posed cliché. Prostitutes and stuff. Way. And, um... Although not, um... Not bad prostitutes. No, Just no. prostitutes. Yeah, just... Yeah. It's uh, the. Sorry, I should clarify when I said bad prostitutes. I mean bad cultural depictions of sex work, not yes. prostitutes who, who are, are bad, bad yeah. either at their jobs or as people. Yes, because there is no causal relationship. Exactly. We like to feel we run a nice, uh, sex-positive and enlightened podcast. At least we try not to, and we try yeah. and deconstruct our prejudices when they pop up by accident. Mm-hmm. And that's all you can really do. I think so. In the in the old west. Um, it opens with a travelling travelling troop of storytellers, I guess, entertainers. Yeah. Um, a man and a girl. These these two characters, um, Fox and Sissy, are travelling narrators. They 
troubadours, did you? Yeah, I'd call we, them we, troubadours. We like, do we like troubadours? It's a good word. It's a good word. It's an underused word. I would agree with that. As but a here jongleur. We are fighting, fighting troubadour underrepresentation in the modern media. We are. And, Single-handedly. Um, We've got six hands between us, but they're not all doing the work all the time. I'm not getting involved in your troubadour shit, so you're down to four already. Oh, shit. God. I've got some spares out there. This, is not, the this is not my fight. Fucking patriarchy. I'm trying to get people to talk about rapscallions. I, I have my hands full of rapscallions. Rapscallions are so 2008. But we shouldn't neglect the intersectional uh, That's true. discourse. Rapscallion troubadours, yes. Yeah. We can all have a nice time. And, um, and in the course of this trying to have a nice time, I can't sell that segue. It's all gone a bit Ronnie Corbett, hasn't it? Yeah. Sorry. Um, sorry. So Fox and Sissy. Um, Sissy is a little sort of orphan girl wearing a kind of raven cloak. Open, open this narration where they tell, broadly speaking, the backstory, which is that there was a man who locked a beautiful woman up in a tower because he was afraid of people being jealous or trying to fuck her or her beauty or all of that Madonna whore imprisoning female sexuality stuff. Um, during the course of which she, um, and this is just nasty, and it's, it's articulated in tiny little details, basically bit open her own wrists and dies. Uh, death comes to collect her and falls in love with her. Um, death has a daughter by her, and the daughter is some kind of Grim Reaper spirit of vengeance thing. That's the kind of backstory. Ginny is, is Death's daughter. She will appear out of nowhere to avenge people, so goes the folklore. And the, um, the, two, the two characters, Fox and Sissy, tell this story and then get embroiled in something. And it takes a while for the precise contours of the something to shake out. Uh, Sissy shoplifts, uh, pickpockets a book from a man which has some kind of significance and leads to them being chased by another reaper. Uh, are they called reapers? Big Alice certainly is. Yeah. So. Um, associates of death that do vengeancy, soul-collecting, general murder and business. They take on the form of bounty hunters because yeah. it's the Wild West, but they are explicitly a core of Grim Reapers. Yeah. Um, and Big Alice is sort of the one that you see the most. Mm. Um, and then, basically, the what the hell is going on, what was the book, who are these people stuff plays out. They all appear to have some kind of mythological significance. Fox is blind but appears to be fully able to see except not all of the time something's going on with Sissy, who precisely is Jeannie and Big Alice, what's going on with death and it all sort of swirls and coalesces and then sort of emerges out of the other end as them all being part of a cyclical story about death having successors it's, in that sense, it's very Sandman Yes, so I, f I found that a lot of the a lot of the details got lost. Well, it's, it's quite hard to explain. <laughs> well, it's quite hard to explain unless you want to actually reveal what is actually happening. Mm. Yes. So if you tell it as a completely linear story as opposed to the experienced narrative. Which, crucially, it doesn't itself. So I read it originally as single issues, and um, each, each issue progresses the main plot, but also fills in the backstory, and it's always in the form of someone telling a story about other characters. Are these prose fictions or additional comic material? No, no, these are the... So you might not notice it in the book as much, but you have sort of... You have the story of the woman in the tower. Mm -hmm. You have the mm. story of the, uh, the sort of the gatekeepers. Mm. Um, you have, you, you know, every, every... What would have been an issue when it originally came out, single issues, there is someone telling a story about... The other characters. Yes, parenthetically nested in Bunny yeah. and Butterfly telling the story of the other girl. Yes, so yeah, you have it's it all gets a little bit Arabian Nights, um, but you have yeah the sort of the narrator which is Bunny, 
um, Bonnie and Butterfly, who incidentally represent two other characters in the book that uh, Ginny perhaps does not like very much. Um, so there's a reason that a dead bunny and a dead butterfly might be narrating the whole tale. And then you've got mm. the sort of present day version, and then people within that tell stories and it goes further down. So you've got sort of three separate levels of um, storytelling and interpretation at least. Um, don't know where I was going with that. Um, differences in the way that structure and the context might emerge in singles and trades. So again, I, I read it as a trade and found I had to kind of loop back over it a couple of times. I, partly because I read it the first time whilst eating tacos in a pub in Manchester. So you had the meat sweats, the meat sweats were upon you. Yeah. Did that add to the, you know, not exactly hallucinogenic, but slightly feverish quality of the book? I think so. I, I like to think I like to think there was an, an old west frisson to the yeah, uh, some border food to the to the spicy afternoon and the inevitable spicy bum hole. I don't I don't suffer from that. I get the indigestion, but I don't get the bum trouble. Spicy bum hole is just a funny thing to say. Yes, yes, it is. So <laughs> I found when I, when I was reading singles. Sorry to get back on track to things that aren't about your tract but um, <laughs> back on track back off track no 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 um, there was sort of back material that um, filled in some details so like for example there's a character called Johnny who really has no explicit purpose yes who or what Johnny is and how he plays into the story so I read the trade was just extremely unclear he is in group with the main characters it is very clear he is part of this whole thing but what part he plays in it and why he's done something in the past he might be atoning or he might just be fucking about and then he comes out and says my name is Johnny Coyote and if you're middling to reasonably acquainted with this stuff you go yeah fine all right Mm. yeah so in the first issue so he's a trickster god I think we can we can explicitly state that he's kind of on a well we're not going to be doing this without spoilers no he's on a he's on a spree across uh, across the west with uh, Raven or Molly Raven in the case in this who is another Native American trickster god which I did not know so I found her very confusing Mm. yeah um and in the first, in the first uh, issue of the singles, it explicitly calls him Johnny Coyote in the back matter, and there's a, a reference to um, a Native American origin story where uh, Raven steals the moon. And it's sort of fairly obvious from there, but that's not in the trade paperback version. So I've now got that in my head over David Bowie's Four Dog Bombs the Moon and it's not going to go away. As long as you don't hum. Try not to. So there's... So in that way you get, you, you get perhaps a, dog. a slightly more coherent version from, from the single issues. Because you get the back matter and you get other bits leading into I it. Have but at a the same real time, problem with that. At, at the same time, it's very. The whole thing is so incoherent um, until you've read it probably twice that it's very, very hard to know where it's going with singles. And that's not putting the commercial hat on for a minute, not necessarily great for actually selling a thing. Do we know how it did? Pretty, pretty well. 
Yeah, I think. I mean, did, everyone was talking about. I it. think it did pretty well, mainly because I mean, it the standalone art looks great. Kelly Sutekonek is a well liked um, writer. Very visible. Um, it's a big, very obvious um, book about. It's a book about women in a lot of ways. There's a lot of the good representation stuff, and there are people that will buy Kelly Sue's books because she is aware of these things. It's uh, pretty much an all uh, all female creative team as well. I think only the letterer was male. You also know that she's not going to just if you read any of her work or heard her speak or something. You know she's not going to shit on the gender roles. Yeah, it's she's going to get this stuff pretty right. So it sold well for. A weird, genuinely incoherent Western um, with a virtually all-female cast and creative team. So I do think incoherent is, although it's factually true, it has a note, an, un, an uncharitable note that yeah, I, okay. I think it doesn't deserve. It, there is, it, it definitely didn't feel coherent, yeah. but incoherent is maybe too I, far. I don't mean that in the pejorative sense. It is oh. very much... Um, it's a sort of Jodorowsky... Uh, but type of thing well um, so he he's done western films and I would be very very surprised if El Topo wasn't uh, something that was uh, watched yeah. going into it because it has that sort of um, dreamlike quality and uh, no particular sense of time one of the things I very much like about it is because it has this running refrain about story because people tell stories and because the establishing background the narrating the story of the death face Ginny um, is so threaded through it. When finally we come to find out what's going on, and it is, of course, someone telling a story, we've been very acutely primed not to ask why is it like that or this doesn't make sense, um, but just to accept that this is... The, because because it's playing with myth, because it's playing with folklore, this is the world. This is, yeah. this is, this is the world that we are at present dealing with. Kind of the way... Um, it reminds me a little bit of some of the way um, Young Avengers Loki talks about his own status as a story. There's a brilliant bit in the middle as well where one character basically says, you know, to a couple of the people who are explicitly off the story that, you know, you people crush and destroy everything. We're mm. just trying to stay out of your way and live our lives. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably the only time it really breaks away from the dreamy mythology, the dreamy folkloric sense to just yeah. kind of... It, there's someone essentially stood there going, what the hell is wrong with all of you people? Um, why is there so much death and violence and destruction in all of this? Which, given that it's quite a dreamy and poetic take for the most part, even though it's violent, is um, was quite a nice touch, I thought. Yes, although it didn't fit very cleanly. True enough. Um... The, the slightly woozy, dreamy tone a lot of it, particularly with things like when Sissy goes into the river and that mm. doesn't happen for any causal reason. Why is the river rising? Why is this happening? It's, it's happening because the narrative imperative demands it and because it fits in with the cycle of myth. It's not... This is, this is one of my objections to it, actually, is just that it does a very good job of establishing a world which doesn't have to have, have rules outside its folklore, but it is still slightly irritating for things to have non-causal, purely narratively required causal structure. Um, that's, that's a personal bugbear. It, it's always going to bother me about things of that kind, but it was particularly glaring in the case of the waters rising around Sissy and Fox. And it's not really a problem elsewhere. 
um, because whenever it strays more strongly from from something more like a human story based causality, it's more explicitly dreamlike. So the fight in Death's Realm has some of these properties, but it doesn't matter because reality is inherently malleable there. It's um, still um, very much high noon, hmm. which you you have to if you're doing it as a western. That's that's, have, yes. that's what you've got to lead to. You've got and to it's lead very to much shoot out a high noon, as you like to describe them. Films of the genre. Um, Clint Eastwood might be a ghost. Yes. <laughs> Weird Western, if you if you want to look it up on Wikipedia, Weird Western would be the genre, but yeah. It's, it, it's got a lot of that feel. Ghost. Um, and sort of objects and tropes are heavily imbued, I mean, quite literally in the sense that the soul of the world is hidden in, in a like Wild West gallows. Yes. Um, and I, I, I like a lot of it. I like the, the separation of the day-night guardians and the imagery there, It's although it, it, it's a little bit American gods. Um, but, well, it's not just America. God. There's, there's a tone that really does make me think of Gaiman, and not in a bad way, not in a derivative way, but there are, there are nods all over the shop. Mm. Uh, I think it's very, very hard to do um, contemporary mythology and not tread on the toes mm. of Neil Gaiman, even, even unintentionally, just by drawing from the same sources you're going to do it. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so the artwork surprise purples so we'll get to the colouring um, so you you struggled with just the density of yeah I, I didn't dislike it visually a lot of it was extremely nice to look at but in terms of I feel like they were trying to do a lot with the artwork in terms of progressing the narrative and that made it a lot less coherent for me I mean we've I'm, I'm, I'm words. I, I do words. Words are my thing. I'm, I don't read stuff that's pictures anywhere near as well as I do words. So there was kind of, and there are sort of swathes where the dialogue is minimal or it's coy or it's alluding to something that I either don't have the background for because it's mythology or because it's being purposely slightly, I've forgotten the word, but you know the one I mean. Obtuse on purpose. Avoidant? No. Um... As in, as in it's, it's coy. You might. Be I think. Of... I think coy. It's being. It's being poised, and it's. Mm. I think what what I'm getting at basically is I liked the artwork, but it didn't work for me in terms of conveying the narrative, which it was tasked with doing a lot of the time. Mm. Yes. More, so... more <laughs> of the motion of the story is in the artwork than in the writing. I. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. So I, it's Emma Rios um, on the line work and Geordie Blair doing the colouring. Um, Emma Rios is someone that I really, really like. Um, I think the first thing of hers I read was um, Doctor Strange Year One a couple of years ago, which I really enjoyed, um, which is not a thing that you would kind of expect to because it's, it's sort of a beginner's get on board um, take on an existing Marvel character but her artwork was so different from everything that had been done with that character there was an extraordinary visual imagination um, and almost a sort of deliberately not retreading the past mm. um, I, I just really appreciated that and of course it's, it's just it's great art but I know what you mean about it being very very dense mm. so um, if you wanted to be uncharitable um, and actually, there's there's a fairly valid comparison with all of the other stuff, particularly um, Moonlight, but also you get this in bits of planetary. Um, you could view it as it's basically just exposition and fights. 
So, I mean, that the issue yeah. um, Moonlight Four is a the one we discussed earlier is is actually a very strong example of this. Visually, it's just something to look at while between yeah. bits of exposition while someone tells you what's going on. And this very strongly happens in bits of Pretty Deadly because of the focus on stories. Um, so, and I do partly wonder if maybe that's subtly miscalibrated because there are mm-hmm. there are swathes of things to be going on and important and interesting things to be going on while people build the world out of their stories and tell us things. Um, and maybe if it was more of the world building and the visuals and more of the storytelling and the narrative maybe, and the writing. Maybe, maybe if, if the balance was skewed a little or, mm. or just if, if a little more awareness of that yeah, offloaded some of the storytelling or had some, some more of the storytelling synchronously with, mm. with the visualisation. So I don't know. I think there is there are elements of the world building there. A lot of so I agree that it's it's occasionally hard to follow. But I think that you get some genuine visual inventiveness, like the stuff with the gatekeepers. Hmm. There's some there's a huge two page spread which is really impressively laid out, and you have sort of your eyes sort of guided by a landscape and the figures, and it's sort of telling the story around them. And there's the, a sense the page of design not is much spectacular. Going. Yeah. Um. So. Even when I didn't necessarily follow or wasn't totally sold on the art, and I pretty much was sold on it, the page design and panel composition is just wonderfully done. So would you say, like, so there's, a, there's the big manga and anime influence. Certainly in her character design, there's a lot of, a lot of manga in there. Um, people are quite pointy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, no, so it's obviously not, not purely um, purely manga, but there's definitely quite a lot in there. Um, same as with someone like Brandon Graham. It's not a manga style, but he's mm. picked up like that guy has watched a lot of Robotech. Um, it's it's definitely in there. It's definitely a big influence, and it's a bigger influence than you would get in a lot of um, Western artists necessarily. It was certainly not what I was expecting for an old West comic. No, I quite like that. It was, yeah, um, like colour-wise, it was fairly innovative for the West, which was good. Yeah. It wasn't the usual kind of sickening brown into orange thing. You would expect quite a lot of deserts and sunsets. Yeah, and there was surprise purple mm. instead. Yeah. Or as well, in places. By surprise purple, do you mean a carefully chosen and evocative colour palette? Yeah. Um, Thank fuck for not that. Not startling sex act. No. So I was talking to um, a friend who's a concept artist. And we were um, trolling around Dave Comics in Brighton. And I was sort of waving things at him because he used to read comics and wanted to get back into it. So I'm talking about things I showed him pretty deadly. And he called it colour was, was something he latched onto. And the fact that for a lot of the subject matter, some of the colour choices were quite unusual. Sort of a lot of purples and greens. Yeah, um, a range you might not expect, and some very surprising choices, um, which, which gave you sort of a bit of contrast, made things look a bit unusual, made the the environment look kind of richer, and I, I think in places sort of more oppressive and overpowering. The luridness. So you don't you don't expect a desert to be lurid. Yeah, no, I would agree. There's a sort of. I think a lot of it, particularly the purple and green, which is quite sickly colours. There's a sort of there's a foreboding, and the world is meant uh, to be sick. Yeah, life and death have ceased functioning properly, and the world is slowly dying. It's broadly. also a slightly more interesting take on portraying nighttime as well. Mm. 
Yeah, there's a lot more colour to the knight. It's easy to get away with being lazy in the knight, but they're not lazy about the knight, and that's good. No. no. I think... I. I so, mine, minor quibbles aside, I really do like the look of the book. Yeah, I feel like we've talked reasonably critically about it, but I think we all really quite liked it. Yeah. Well, we are being critics when we're not saying weird things about non-existent and existentially terrifying wine. No, but I don't want anyone to think I didn't enjoy this and wouldn't no. recommend it, because I did and I would. Podcast wine is like the dark itself, which you mustn't. So, Western's not really a thing that you would normally go for particularly, is it? No, not usually. Not for any particular reason. I don't have anything against Westerns. They just kind of fall into the category of stuff I've never had to give a fuck about. Um, I had a great uncle who was addicted broadly to alcohol and Westerns and then he got cancer of the face and they had to take his face off. Or some of it. That might put me off Westerns, but it might not. Do you think it does it? Probably not. No. Must Put me off face do any cancer. Of jokes. I, I um. Didn't need to be put off face cancer in the first place. No, I was never was... really a fan. It yeah. wasn't. Um, it wasn't that semi-contagious kind that Tasmanian devils get, was it? I don't think weird. so. I think it was just the normal kind where you've got you know cancer in your face. Mm-hmm. I think so. Westerns are something I appreciate more the older I get, um, mostly because a lot of them are smarter than I'd expected. Mm. Um, and there is a lot, like, again, the same sort of dreamlike, quasi-mythological thing going on. I think on. those are the only ones I've seen. Well, that's a lot of them. Like, was it? The, the, I've seen The Searchers, which is not. But there's, is it High Plains, Searchers is Bastard, not, or something? High, one of them? High Plains Drifter, definitely. Yes. Oh, High Plains Drifter gives, um, gives pretty deadly a run for its money in the sheer fucking weirdness stakes. What's the other one that's a little bit odd? Pale Rider. Yes, that's quite a lot of fun. Yeah. High Plains Drifter is much darker and a bit more explicit about its supernatural leanings. Mm. Um, and uh, Beautiful as well, the landscapes. Yeah, basically a, um, there's a small town being faintly oppressed by, by bandits and um, uh, a, a man rides into town and uh, sorts a few of them out with sticks. He just beats them soundly. And um, people want him to sort of free the town and gradually he gets them to confess that, you know, there are these bandits killed the old sheriff of the town while they watched on and did nothing. Mm. And it's slowly implied that he is the sort of spirit of that um, that sheriff come for vengeance. Vengeance. And uh, eventually he saves them at fairly unpleasant cost, which is, is nice. It's also the the soundly beaten with sticks sequence is um, itself an almost perfect compressed micro western. Yes, yeah. People hang around spitting outside a building. Man comes in, hits them with sticks, dusts his hands off, and goes and gets a haircut. It's a good scene. That sounds about right. Yeah. How do we get onto? Oh, yeah, western as a as a genre. Well, just I think westerns. Western as a genre is something that's heavily mythologized anyway, um, and pretty deadly sits nicely in there. Although it does have its own little idiosyncrasies, like uh, quite a lot of sword play. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the bits where it juts off from just being 
standard western I do like but the fact that everyone expects to fight with swords is quite a nice thing which sort of at the period that it's set which is probably late 1800s it would have really died out mm, yeah um, they had firepower for several centuries and they were using it it's a little bit Kill Bill in that sense yeah yeah deliberately anachronistic um which I suppose you can get away with when everything is story and nothing is real. Mm. So let's do the crass thing and talk about whether you would recommend this and why. Lucy, first. I already said that I would. I, I would know, recommend, I'm trying um, to get you to sum up. Okay, yeah, I would definitely recommend this um, because I enjoyed it. I want to probably read it again and hopefully understand it a bit more this time, but I enjoyed the internal mythology of it a lot. I can't really comment on how that plays into established mythology because that's just not a place where I've got a lot of understanding. It doesn't very much, really. It borrows characters from Mm. Native American mythology but doesn't really do very much with them other than use that to gift them the roles of trickster, essentially. Okay. It allows them to fulfil that function in the narrative but it's not... It's not heavily derived from extant mythology. Now, I like the basic sort of fairy tale of it a great deal. It's got... Fairy tale is a good good description. I mean, particularly the princess in the tower. Exactly. It's um, got plenty of... I wanted more of that. Romance and... In, yeah, I wanted more of that as well, actually. I think... I wanted to know her a little more. I think... Yes. Um, I think we just want the Lady of Shalott as the problem. Given, given that she's only ever referred to as beauty, I think mm. her function in the story is fairly clear as being mm. sort of... Metaphor? Yes. Oh, no, I want to hang out with metaphor. It's a good thing you did an English degree then, isn't it? I hung out with metaphor at great personal expense. Metaphor never picks up the tab. Yeah, what a dick. Roger. The podcast wine is... Best served from the skull of a forgotten god. I don't want to think. I don't want you thinking you have license to do that every time I refer to you by name. I'm not fucking invoking you. I'm asking you to talk about the fucking comic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's reading it like he's being invoked. Yeah, yeah. No, so uh, yes, I would. I would recommend it. I, I would caveat that a little. So, I absolutely loved the sort of death, dying, and rising structure that it turns out to be about I really want more things in that world I'd like to know what the consequences are Mm. Um, I I would recommend it but I kind of feel it needed to either be shorter and more concise or longer and explain itself a little more I I feel there is a gap in showing it's working that exists somewhere in that space I kind of ham-fistedly half-identified where the visuals do some of the work but maybe not quite as much as they ought to do and that overall leaves some work not getting done I I think it legitimately is a confusing read although it will pay you back for putting the effort in and I'm not I'm not averse to the difficult and I'm not averse to recommending the difficult but I'm not convinced all of that complexity is irreducible no I, I think there are unknown unknowns so my, my read on the, the sort of the different deaths was that it was sort of the dawning of um, the 20th century and perhaps a reduction in the sort of really hard scrabble um, death and violence Wild West take on it. But that would really only work for 
America and not Europe uh, for the early 20th century. There's also no indication of that rising in the world? No, but there's a panel at the end of the new death being innocent. Sure, but... Maybe I'm needlessly mapping this to the Endless or something like Jenny Quantum, but... um, Does the kinder, gigglier new death herald a change in the world, or is she caused by it? There's no sense that it's either. No, there isn't, and that's... Which is which is fine. Um, either it's coming or you're wrong. Um, yeah. I think um, my read was that it's caused by the world, given that the old death seems to know that his time is up. Yes, that's, that's for sure. Um, and he is... But again, that is very much my take. And that could be a case of caused by the cycle rather than caused by the world and the world being yeah. a part of that cycle. Or reflected, yeah. But he is quite strongly tied to... He feels quite strongly Old West or maybe even older than that. And actually his cavalry saver is potentially the, the, incongru- the an- anachronism of the Reapers fighting the swords. That could potentially be... It is the death of I the think, old age. I think it's probably that they have to have blades because they're Reapers. But Well, that would um, do it as well. But yes, there's... I mean, his his outfit is is eighteenth rather than nineteenth century. If he's at the mm. end of his allotted span, those could be yeah. the clothes he came in. Yeah, this is true. I would also uh, recommend this book, and I don't know if I would recommend reading it as single issues as I did originally. Do you think that what you gain in coherence in the as in you would or wouldn't recommend singles? I don't think I would. I th- I think it's something that needs to be read and reread in fairly quick succession. And reading it over a period of months does not help it cohere. Does the back matter help with the story at all? Though it helps a little bit. Like there's the example I gave of Johnny. getting a better idea of who Johnny is. But not enough that losing that to gain the overall narrative coherence of the whole thing is a bad yeah. payoff. You still find out as long as you're paying attention. Um, Which is something I chronically struggle with. But there's, I mean, there's stuff as well like tied to that where you sort of they're constantly referring to Molly Raven throughout, who's not someone you see, mm. um, but it turns out that she's there all the time. She's a bird in the background or something like that. And then the only way you see that is when another character is is waking up and is essentially between the world of death and the gods and the human world, and she sees Johnny and Molly reversed in animal and human forms. So she sees Molly as human for the first time and Johnny as a coyote. Mm. But that probably just seems trippy as balls if you're not looking for it, and if you don't know that coyotes and ravens are trickster spirits. Mm. So I guess... It probably would help, but again, does it help to have a pre-existing knowledge of this mythology, for mm. example? There's some serious stuff here around incorporating and working with context that we really don't have time to get into. True. We really don't. Because it's time to go. It is. It is time to go. I'm sure we're all very sad. Oh, it's been lovely. I've had a nice time. We yeah. actually talked about comics. Have you had a nice time? Quite a lot. Yeah, of course. So I'm glad you've had a nice time. Do you want to say goodbye to the nice people?
Imp. Rapscallion. 